At this point in our worship service, we spend a substantial portion of time studying the Word of God, studying the Bible. And so I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 34. If you want to use one of the pew Bibles, which is provided near you, either under the seat below you or in front of you, that would be on page 166. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you when we're concluded today. If you're here on a regular basis, uh, this, as then you would know that this is the first sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which will take us until about mid-July or so in our preaching schedule to work through this passage, uh, this book, passage by passage. Today we're just trying to get our bearings, kind of trying to establish what this book is all about and uh, how it fits into the Bible as a whole and some of the ways that we can expect the Lord to use this book in our lives these next few months. I decided back late last year to preach this book uh, as part of the regular preaching schedule here at Brainerd once we finished Luke, and I'll explain some of the reasons in a few minutes, about seven reasons that I have for wanting to preach this book, Uh, but one of the initial ones was just my desire to continue the trend of preaching Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So uh, when I first arrived here three years ago, or a little over three years ago now, I preached through Philippians and then the Minor Prophets or what we sometimes call the Book of the Twelve Minor Prophets. Uh, then First John, we did a series on the whole Bible, what the whole Bible is about, how it's structured, what uh, the message of the whole Bible is. Uh, Ecclesiastes after that, then Luke. Then we stayed in Luke last summer, or I'm sorry, stayed in the New Testament last summer when we studied Second Timothy for a few months, and then went back and finished Luke last Sunday. So now Deuteronomy, going back to the Old Testament. It's possible that Deuteronomy is totally new to you, even if you've been a Christian for a long time. Uh, On the other hand, maybe some of us just need a review on what this book is and what it's about. I'm fairly certain this will be the first sermon series I've ever heard on Deuteronomy. I don't know about the rest of you, uh, but uh, I I do think that a lack of preaching on Deuteronomy has contributed to a lack of understanding of what it's about. And so I hope we can chip away at that a little bit these next few months. Uh, this, part, this book of the Bible is part of a section of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. Just, Pentateuch just means five books. And uh, if you're a Jewish person, you would call this the Torah, which is the word for law. Uh, and so essentially we're studying what Jesus himself called the law when he referred in Luke 24, or, yeah, Luke 24 to the three sections of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This section of the Bible was written by Moses, who's one of the most significant figures in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, If you don't know much about Moses, just stick around the next few months and you'll become more warmly acquainted to him. Uh, But essentially it was through his leadership that God established his people, and it was uh, through his leadership that God then prepared them for life as his people, even after he would die. Deuteronomy was probably written around the year 1400 B.C., so it means we're going back about 3,500 years, and maybe that's the reason you would scratch your head and say, why in the world are we spending time reading a document that was written to a very different group of people in a very different part of human history that long ago, and uh, I'm glad you asked if that's the question that's on your mind today. Uh, I'm making the perhaps audacious-sounding claim that Deuteronomy may be the most important book in the Old Testament. I argued that to one of my friends who has a PhD in theology last night. He didn't quite buy it, but he did, uh, what's the word, seed, a seed, I don't know, he did give in to the, when I said that I think 
Deuteronomy is the hinge on which the rest of the Old Testament hangs, and he totally agreed with that and thought that was the word. He said, I would get away from the most important part because everyone's going to argue it's either Genesis or Isaiah. Uh, that's fine. I'm still sticking with Deuteronomy, but at least it's the hinge, if you know it's not the most important. So Deuteronomy, the reason it's the hinge is Deuteronomy is the climax of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. All of those are working toward Deuteronomy. And then, after Deuteronomy comes Joshua, and everything from Joshua on is hanging on what Deuteronomy says. So that's why I'm calling it the hinge of the Old Testament. Some of my belief in the significance of this book, why I think it's so important, is because of my heartfelt conviction that the Bible is one book. Yeah, it has 66 books. Okay, We want to understand that. There are different authors written at different times and so forth, different audiences, different situations. But ultimately, the Bible is one book written by one divine author telling one glorious story. And you can... uh, Frame that story, frame that message in a lot of different ways, but ultimately the Bible is about the Creator God overcoming evil and rescuing His people through the saving work of His own Son, Jesus Christ. In a significant sense, that story is told through the book of Deuteronomy. Again, that story in large part doesn't make sense without Deuteronomy. It's my job, I feel like, to prove to you what I've just said. I think this is a super important book that the Bible kind of doesn't hold together if you don't have this hinge in it. So hopefully these next few months you'll become convinced of that as well. If in Luke and most other books I've preached here, we've taken more of a street view, like you've all probably been on Google Street View, you know what it's like to kind of work your way through a neighborhood on Google Street View. Most of the passages that I preached in Luke was like being on Google Street View. Now what we're doing is zooming totally out on satellite view. And that's what we're going to do with Deuteronomy today. In the next few weeks, we're going to zoom in to, you know, not street view, but not the total satellite view either. So um, maybe that metaphor will help a little bit of just, you know, there are different ways you can zoom in on a passage and different ways you can zoom out. Today we're pretty far zoomed out by looking at a whole book at one time. So with all that in mind, again, we're in Deuteronomy 34. This is the last section of Deuteronomy, the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Uh, This is going to give us a a bit of a sense of what this book is and what it's doing, what it's about as a whole. So this is on page 166 in the Pew Bible. Please follow along silently as I read this passage aloud. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. 
So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. On September 18, 2007, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh delivered a lecture to a room full of people. But it wasn't any old lecture. He had given lots of lectures before, hundreds, if not thousands. But this wasn't just another lecture. In fact, this was the man's last lecture. The professor was 46 years old. His name was Randy Pausch. He was a professor of computer science there at Carnegie Mellon. He was a husband, he had three children. This man was giving this lecture, though, because he had recently been told he only had a few weeks or a few months left to live due to pancreatic cancer. So the university was giving him a chance to address his colleagues, his students, his family, one final time in a lecture hall. I've read the book that that lecture turned into, called The Last Lecture, by Randy Pausch, and uh, I honestly can say I don't remember much about it. That's basically about being happy and fulfilled by chasing your life's dreams. That's kind of the gist of the book. But I mention this public address because of the similarity between that last lecture and the book of Deuteronomy. And the similarity is Randy Pausch was giving his last address before he died. And Moses was giving his last address to the people of God before he died. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's one very long sermon, basically. Uh, Far longer than this one's going to be, I promise. But that's the main point of contact between Deuteronomy and Randy Pausch is it's the last speech from these two men. Just as a company needs a succession plan for the CEO or for the president, he needs a vice president perhaps, Uh, just as a school administrator needs a succession plan before he retires, uh, Moses knew he was going to die. And so he established a succession plan, as God told him to do, getting Joshua to be the successor for leading God's people. But he was telling the people he had been leading for the last 40 years all that they needed to know before he was gone and all that they needed to do after he was gone. So in a basic sense, that's what Deuteronomy is, the final address of a man who would soon die. Deuteronomy is much more than that, though. It's essentially a very long sermon, as I mentioned, This is what some authors have called the gospel according to Moses. Maybe it's a bit of a different way of thinking of it. You've heard of the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the gospel according to Moses. Essentially, he's a pastor here in Deuteronomy, shepherding people who are in need of hope because they are anxious, they are distrusting, they are kind of wandering, missionless Lacking, perhaps, in zeal. Lacking in confidence in what's going to happen after Moses dies. And I want to pause right there and ask, what are you anxious about? What is keeping you awake? When you look at the future, what makes you say, I don't know how this is going to work out? This book of Deuteronomy helps address those concerns. Helps keep you from having to stay up all night worrying about the future because this book tells you about the God who holds the future in his hands. Perhaps if if I were to ask you, 
you know, I talked a few minutes ago about what is the most important book in the Old Testament. What's the most important book in the New Testament? Or what book holds the rest of the New Testament together? Which book in the New Testament takes all the threads of the New Testament and ties them into one bunch? I would probably say Romans. So Deuteronomy is the Romans of the Old Testament, taking the threads and taking the themes and pulling them all together. Uh, in one sense, you could look at you know, the Pentateuch as, as being a mountain range where you start with Genesis and you go higher, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the climax. Deuteronomy is the peak, and the rest of the Old Testament flows off of that peak like, a, you know, like, like the spring rains or the... the frozen ice and snow from the winter. It's all melting. It's running down the stream. That's what the rest of the Old Testament is. It's flowing from the mountaintop of Deuteronomy. So why am I preaching this book? I'm going to give you seven reasons. This is not super important for you to take notes on unless you really like to know this, but uh, I could also just email you my notes if you prefer that. Uh, But one is because I'm eager to preach the whole counsel of God. So in the book of Acts, Paul was about to leave the elders in Ephesus, and he told them, I have sought to teach you the whole counsel of God. By that he means, I've sought to tell you everything the Bible is and what you need to know in order to faithfully follow Jesus Christ the rest of your lives. And that's what I feel like my job is as a pastor, is to teach you the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, who is God and what's it look like to love him and to worship him alone? I want to preach Deuteronomy because, secondly, it's ultimately about the deliverance that God provides through Jesus. Jesus is not mentioned by name in the book of Deuteronomy. You shouldn't be looking for that. We don't want to be like scraping under rocks to try and find Jesus under there somewhere. But we can see that the, the promises of Deuteronomy are fulfilled in Jesus. The expectations that Deuteronomy lays out are answered ultimately through the gospel of Jesus. Third, Deuteronomy is the book most quoted by Jesus. What Old Testament or what books, I'm sorry, what New Testament books quote? Deuteronomy. Terry gave us a pretty glaring hint earlier. He read three passages from Deuteronomy, all from one passage in Matthew. And we could have gone to Luke. I told Clayton, just do the Matthew one. I think I told you that. And one of my reasons for that was because we just read Luke for like two years. So let's see that it's in Matthew 2. So in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. Three different parts of Deuteronomy, three different messages there. But every time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus came back with Deuteronomy. I think that should make it important to us. Fourth, Deuteronomy is frequently quoted and alluded to by Paul and other New Testament authors. It's all over the book of Hebrews, which you're gathering from Clayton's sermon series. Fifth, as I've already alluded to, without Deuteronomy, the Old Testament makes very little sense. It really doesn't hold together. And without the Old Testament making sense, the New Testament makes even less sense. Uh, So hopefully, this book will help you make sense of the whole Bible. Hopefully, it'll just be far clearer to you because you understand how Deuteronomy holds the rest of the Old Testament together, which then feeds into the New Testament. So the Old Testament lays the foundation for the Gospel. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Gospel. The Old Testament tells us why we need a Savior. The New Testament tells us who the Savior is. Those are just a couple different ways we could put that. But I remember a time in high school, I was traveling on a long trip with one of my pastors, and he asked me, and a few other people, I think there were two other people in the car, he said, what do you not understand about the Bible? And I sat in total silence. What he was trying to do, this man named Sean, what he was trying to do was um, 
know how to help shepherd people like me and people in our youth group? And he was trying to gauge, like, what should I teach through? What resources should I recommend? Should I put in their hands? What do you not understand about the Bible? And I didn't even know how to answer that question because I knew so little about the Bible. And so I hope Deuteronomy will help create some categories, maybe, to help you be able to answer that question. What do you not understand? Well, here's what I don't understand because Deuteronomy kind of helps me make sense of what I do and do not understand. Sixth, the, old, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is full of grace. It's full of glorious promises, and it is parallel in many ways to our experience as Christians living in the New Testament era in the 21st century. And seventh, it is profitable, Paul says, for the work that God wants to do in our hearts. He says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What did Paul have in mind when he said that all Scripture is profitable? The whole Old Testament. That's what he's referring to. That's all they had. That was the Bible at that time. We are blessed to have 66 books, to have the whole Bible. Paul was just referring to the 39 books of the Old Testament when he said that this is what you need to be equipped, to be trained in righteousness. So we need the book of Deuteronomy for all these reasons. So what is this book about? I think I've already hinted a little bit at it. The message of Deuteronomy is that God has graciously led you in the past. God will graciously provide for you in the future. So choose to follow him in wholehearted, loving obedience. I'll say that again, and I'll say it in a variety of ways throughout the sermon. God has graciously led you in the past and will graciously provide for you in the future. Choose to follow him in wholehearted, loving obedience. Or you could just say, walk in loyal love for God because he is Lord alone. Or you could say, God has chosen you, so now you choose to obey him. Lots of different ways we could say this. But this book teaches us then four truths about God's grace. If this is telling you that God has graciously led you in the past and he will graciously provide for you in the future, there are four truths about God's grace here. The first is that his grace was necessary. His grace was necessary. The reason it was necessary is because the human heart is rebellious and stubborn. This is what Moses lays out for the people of Israel And the whole rest of the Bible tells us about our hearts. The reason we need the book of Deuteronomy is because the heart of the people of Israel that was rebellious and stubborn mirrors our own. We have stubborn, rebellious hearts that resist God and His ways. So in chapter 9, verse 7, I'll just be reading a ton of different uh, verses here. If you want to flip around, you can. If you just want to write them down, you can. If you just want to listen, that's also totally fine. Do whatever is going to be least distracting for you. But chapter 9, verse 7 says, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. It's not a super complimentary description of God's people, but it was the truth. And so in chapter 10, verse 16, Moses writes, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Set aside your rebellious, hard-hearted ways and submit yourself to God. And toward the end of the book, in chapter 9, verse 4, Moses writes, To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You have a hard heart, in other words. And this is 
a description of your heart. No one is born with a heart that chases after God. Instead, we have hearts that rebel against God, which is why we need the Gospel in the first place. Why we need God to pursue us. Because as we sometimes sing in the song, uh, All I Have is Christ, our hearts were running the other direction. And we never would have pursued God if He had not first pursued us. Right? First John says we love Him because what? Because He first loved us. He chased after us with relentless love. And what Moses is laying out here is that the reason that was necessary is because their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Yours is as well. And so if you have spiritual life, if you're sitting here as someone you know that you are a follower of Jesus, you've experienced the cleansing grace of Christ, praise God with gratitude for that spiritual life. Just as God chose Israel and gave her life, if you are a Christian, it is because God chose you and gave you life. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But God has made you alive by grace through faith. This is especially clear, this fact that God has chosen you and has given you spiritual life, not because you deserved it, but because of His own desire to do that. This is especially clear in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God graciously chose the people of Israel, as we'll get into in a little bit. And He has graciously chosen you as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus. God's grace was necessary for Israel because of their stubborn and rebellious hearts, but secondly, because they will still rebel in the future. At the point that Moses wrote this, they, weren't, they literally were not through the woods yet. They had a long way to go before they would have hearts that were submissive to God. Before they had hearts that were no longer stubborn and rebellious. Let me read from chapter 28, verses 45 and 51. So the book's 34 chapters long, so obviously you know chapter 28. It's right toward the end of it. In verse 45 he says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall also not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. In other words, there's really bad judgment coming because of your rebellion. Because of your hard-heartedness. And when I say that Deuteronomy is the hinge for the rest of the Old Testament, I'm saying the rest of the Old Testament is essentially about the judgment that God brought on His people because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. And so the prophets are writing about, you need to repent. 
You need to turn to the Lord before it's too late, before this other nation who speaks a different language, who's going to take all your goods, before they come, repent now. And God's people were just like, "Mm, this is better. We'll serve these other gods. We're good. This God's pretty satisfying. That God's pretty satisfying. We like this better. And they faced judgment because of it. And so maybe you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, and I would ask you, how do you respond to the perspective of this book that this book holds out about the rebellion of human hearts, the rebellious condition of your heart? Do you agree that we are fundamentally evil rather than fundamentally good? That's not a very popular message in our day. But we are fundamentally evil in our hearts because we have rebelled against God himself. And so, does your perspective of what is wrong with the world account for what you see people do? Does it account for senseless violence? Does it explain what you have done yourself? I think this is a really important question, a critical question, for us to have an explanation for why there's evil in the world. The Bible's explanation is because of the fall in Genesis 3, and the way that has worked itself out, the curse from the Garden of Eden working itself out in rebellious and wicked human hearts. Not a single one of us has kept God's law because of the rebellion in our hearts. And so the only way you can stand before God on the day when you give an account to Him for the way that you have lived, for the choices that you have made, for the things you have done and said and thought, the only way you can stand before Him on that last day with confidence is if you have the righteousness of another person. Someone who hasn't broken the law the way that you have And that means that only Jesus can be your substitute. Only Jesus can stand before God on your behalf and give you his perfect righteousness because he took your wicked, rebellious sin on the cross. And so we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church want to urge you to turn in faith to Jesus and let him stand as your advocate, as the one who satisfies the wrath of God on your behalf as the one who sprinkles your heart clean with the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross for you. Believe that he alone can save you by his gracious love. Turn in love to him. Turn from your love for your sin. Turn from your trust in other gods or other religious systems. None of those can save you from the rebellion that is in your heart against the one true holy God. But he can, he certainly will forgive you if you turn in faith to him. He will cover your sin by the blood of Jesus if you turn in faith to him. So God's grace was necessary. Secondly, this book teaches that his grace has been evident. How was it evident to the people of God? And of course then, how has it been evident to you? It was evident to the people of God Israel here, in choosing them. This is especially clear in chapter 7, though it's alluded to multiple other times throughout the book. In chapter 7, verse 6, God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God was gracious in choosing Israel 
And of course, with great privilege, the privilege of being the chosen people of God, comes great responsibility. And so Israel, that means they faced great consequences for their failure to fulfill their responsibility, to be a light to the nations. And you are a child of God because God redeemed you out of slavery. Your slavery was not being in shackles in Egypt. Your slavery was to sin. God has shown His grace to you in giving you Christ's obedient life, His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection, His ascension to heaven in victory. You are a child of God because of the work of God. And so God's grace has been evident in the past. It was evident in choosing Israel. It was also evident in leading Israel. In chapter 1, verses 29, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. God has been gracious to lead his people. This is hammered home again in chapter 4, verses 37 to 39. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. In other words, the Lord led you all the way through the wilderness. Moses writes this, chapter 1 tells, it, tells them, after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. It should have taken 11 days, he says in one of the first few verses of this book. We'll get to that next week. It should take 11 days. It took you 40 years because of your hard, stubborn hearts. But look how God has graciously led you one step after another. This book recounts how God has shown his grace over and over again to his people. And Christian, Jesus Christ will lead you all the way home as well. No, you're not wandering through the wilderness with the children of God, being led by fire during the, day, uh, during the night and cloud during the day. No, you're not seeing that. But you are still walking along as a pilgrim, not home yet, following the Lord, having been redeemed out of slavery to sin. And so the Lord will continue to show His grace to you and continue to lead you. He's also made His grace evident in protecting His people. In chapter 3, you hear about the way the Lord has helped them overcome their enemies uh, on their way through the wilderness. We turned and went up to the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. The Lord was gracious to them. He led them. He protected them after choosing them. His grace has been evident to you as well. If you're a Christian, make a list. Try and make a list of 50 ways you've seen God's grace to you. It's probably going to go by like that. So maybe you need to go for 100. All I'm saying is God's grace is all over your life. The fingerprints are all over your life. God's grace, third, will be further revealed. What does this book teach us about God's grace? It will be further revealed to you. It will be revealed in the future. 
in chapter 31, he says that he will give them victory over their enemies. This is the passage on the front of your bulletin today. Chapter 31, verses 6 through 8. Guess what, God's people? You should not be afraid. You should not fear what's going to happen because the Lord is the one who takes care of you. Listen to these beautiful words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We sing this every time we sing, how firm a foundation. He'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God's grace is very evident in the past, but Christian, God's grace is very evident in the future. So keep walking with Him. Keep trusting Him. Keep believing His Word. His grace will be revealed because in the way that He will give them new hearts. This is especially clear in chapter 30, verse 6. Remember I read back in chapter 10, circumcise your hearts, stop having such a hard heart. That's a really big problem, that you don't have a heart that submits to God. And all you see through Deuteronomy is their hard-heartedness over and over again. But chapter 30, verse 6 says, okay. The Lord says, I'm going to take care of this problem myself. I'm going to give you a new heart. The Lord our God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is the first promise, basically, of what we call the New Covenant. Our Bible is divided into the Old Covenant, what it looked like to be under, what was the Old Covenant, what it looked like to live under the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, or the New Covenant. What's it look like to be a New Testament, New Covenant Christian? What's it look like to, or how did God accomplish that covenant? How did he initiate it? Through Jesus. So the New Testament, the New Covenant, is about Jesus. And what this passage is doing is making us think of passages like Jeremiah 31, which flips forward hundreds of years. But God did not forget His promise from Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, for hundreds of years. He promised it again in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Ezekiel 36 builds on this and says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You're going to have a heart that actually wants to worship me because I'm giving you a new heart. This is God's grace in the future. This was future when Moses wrote it. It's past now. This is what I mean when I say We are blessed of all people to be living in the New Covenant era, in the New Testament. So this book is a call to respond to grace, past, present, and future, with loyal love, which is demonstrated through obedience. While keeping in mind, of course, that obedience to the law was never intended, never designed to save Israel, or you, or anyone else. It was a means of expressing gratitude. So the Ten Commandments, which are recounted in Deuteronomy 5, we'll see this in a few weeks, they're recounted in Deuteronomy 5, and how did the Ten Commandments start? I led you out of slavery in Egypt, so obey. It doesn't start with, obey, and then I'll lead you out of Egypt. 
It's gospel in response. This is why we call this the gospel according to Moses sometimes. Obedience is a means of expressing gratitude for the redemption God provided, and it showcases the glory of God. So even Ephesians chapter 2, which I already quoted, by grace you've been saved through faith. Why were you saved by grace through faith? So that you can do good works, which God laid out for you. That's verse 10 of Ephesians 2. That's why we obey. But there's a serious problem. Your heart resists God. So what does this book say about this? Again, though your heart is rebellious, God will prove himself faithful and will surely provide you with the heart you need in order to obey him. That is beautiful. That is future grace. Again, for us as New Testament Christians living on this side of the cross, this is past grace. So this book is teaching us four truths about God's grace. First, His grace was necessary. Second, His grace has been evident. Third, His grace will be further revealed. And fourth, His grace demands a response. How should we respond to the grace of God that we see in our lives? How should God's people in the book of Deuteronomy have responded to God's grace that they had seen? That response included love for Him. Love for God reveals itself powerfully in right relationships. A significant central part of this book is telling you what it looked like to love your neighbor, right? So when Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, when he told a man, summarize for me the whole Old Testament, but the man said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. Why is that exactly right? Because that's exactly what Deuteronomy is about. And so particularly, we love God, but one of the ways we show our love for God is by love for other people. And so a lot of times, my, I'm still thinking, well, my, my youngest son is connecting these dots. A lot of times, <laughs> just this past week, he put a cup of hot chocolate, while we're drinking hot chocolate, in the last day of April, I'm not sure, but put a cup of hot chocolate on a coaster, and he said, this is how I honor God, by honoring mommy and daddy. And I was like, yes, you're getting the point. Children honor God by honoring their father and mother. Okay? So... That means that a significant part of loving God is being in right relationships. I just want to ask you, are you in right relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your church members? This book is going to hammer home the need to be rightly related to the people in your life. In Deuteronomy, it was be rightly related to the people living in the plot of land God has given you. In our case, be rightly related to the people God has placed around you. And all this is part of love for God, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, a very, one of the more famous verses in this beautiful book. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then it's repeated in chapter 10, verse 12, this concept of love for God, which really hadn't shown up before this in the Pentateuch, in the first four books. It's really being developed Here, for the first time, chapter 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding for you today. So love God, that's a, demand, a response to God's grace. His grace demands a response, demands love. Secondly, it demands obedience. I just read that portion in chapter 10 and chapter 11, verse 22. 
Moses writes, For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you, loving the Lord your God, walking in all His ways, and holding fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. And it's the same chapter, verses 26 through 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And the blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. We obey God's word, but in order for us to obey it, we have to listen to it. And the word hear and the word listen appears over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I want to urge you, Christian, to listen to God's Word and let His Word shape your conscience. Your conscience is your consciousness of what is right and what is wrong. And all of us have a variety of inputs being poured into our lives telling you what is right and what is wrong. If you listen to a certain kind of podcast, you're going to be told that you are sinning if you use a non-electric vehicle. If you listen to a certain kind of podcast, you're going to be told that it is Good to kill unborn babies. If you read certain kind of articles, and what I'm just saying is just all of the inputs we take in are shaping our view of what is right and what is wrong. And all I'm imploring you to do is let the Word of God be what shapes your consciousness your, of what is right and wrong, your conscience. And if you would like to read a resource about that, we plan to go through that in a Sunday school class this summer. Maybe uh, your consciousness of what's right and wrong is shaped by mainstream media or social media or your favorite athletes or entertainers. They all have something to say about what's right and what's wrong. I'm just saying, let the Word of God be what shapes your view of what's right and what's wrong. Your obedience to God is possible because we live with circumcised hearts. Because we live on this side of the cross. Because we live in the new covenant. Because Jesus has fulfilled and inaugurated the new covenant. You obey by the transforming grace and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which was a benefit that the children of Israel did not have. We, living after the day of Pentecost, have the wonderful privilege of having the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts so that we can obey. So we relate to the God of Deuteronomy through Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me just this past week, how is the series in Deuteronomy going to be any different than what you would hear in a Jewish synagogue? What I just said is what's different. You aren't just told to tighten your belt and pull up your bootstraps and obey God. You're being told you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart because we live in the new covenant. We have circumcised hearts because of the work of Jesus. He is the one who will lead you into the eternal rest that God provides, that Christ prepares. So we respond to God's grace with love, with obedience, and third, with worship. Chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. It's one example of this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. I could give other examples of this idea of worship. Sometimes it uses the word worship. Sometimes it just uses the word serve or fear. There's a variety of ways that God describes the way we worship him. And let me just tell you, we are still tempted by idols. In this day, you read 
Moses telling God's people to chop down the idols that people were worshiping, cut down the trees where people were establishing altars, do whatever it takes to get rid of the temptations to sin. We still have idols that cling to us, though. We don't go to a tree to worship. We want control. We want comfort. We want peace and quiet. We want beauty. We want victory. We want recognition. We want success. This is what we worship. And the Lord is saying, strike down those idols and worship me alone. We respond to God's grace through love, through obedience, and through worship. Randy Posh died in July 2008. So he actually made it about 10 months after that last lecture that he delivered at Carnegie Mellon. In that lecture, he said, Time is all you have, and you may find one day that you have less than you think. He was saying that as a way of saying, Enjoy every moment. To which I say, Have small children and try enjoying every moment. But enjoy them as they get older. Enjoy every moment they're sleeping sweetly in their beds. But what he's saying is, life is a gift. I would agree with that. The author of Ecclesiastes would agree with that. Please understand what I was saying was a joke, right? Having a children, having children is a wonderful gift. The Bible itself tells us that. But what I was saying is, time is a gift. And the author of Ecclesiastes agrees with that. And he himself tells you to enjoy every moment. To soak in the good gifts that God has given you. Love life. Enjoy it. Because, yes, life will one day be behind you. I don't think that Randy Posh had a Christian perspective from reading the book, from reacquainting myself with that lecture. I don't think he had a biblical worldview. But it's not a bad piece of advice to say, enjoy your life. Because you may not have a lot of time left. Moses, from the book of Deuteronomy, would simply add to that piece of advice. He would simply say, yes, enjoy the life that God has given you. And while you do that, walk in loyal love for God. Because He is Lord alone, and He will lead you all the way home. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks today. We worship you today because of Jesus, because we can approach you through him, because he has indeed given us hearts to obey, hearts to yearn after you and your glory. You have given us zeal to live the one life that we have to shepherd our children in the nurture and admonition of your ways. You've given us the desire to be faithfully related to other Christians through the church. You've given us the desire to fight our sin that so easily besets us. In short, you have given us the desire to live the one short life that we have for your glory. And we give you thanks for that. And we pray that we would indeed use this one life, which will soon be over, for what will last. And that is the praise of your name. In Christ's name, amen.